Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 10 uh, this afternoon. So Genesis 22, starting at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, this passage today is a difficult passage. It's perplexing. uh, It's difficult for us to understand, but it's rich and it's beautiful if we're willing to do the hard work. And so, uh, by way of introduction, I want to say three things. This is not a tale or a myth or a a story that isn't true. This is a real story that really happened. I hope we all believe that here. Sometimes people speak of things in the Old Testament as if they didn't really happen. But these things really happened. And if I use the word story, I am by no means saying that this isn't true. It would be like saying, this is my story, something that really happened. Um, Another thing by way of introduction is we need to read this passage in the context of Abraham's whole life and all of his dealings with God. And this will, you'll see how important this is later. And the third thing is that we need to read this passage in the light of the whole Bible. We can't read this text in such an isolated way that we don't understand. We have the understanding of the whole Bible with us, and we need to bring that with us as we come to this one text. And I have a signpost. Where are we going for this sermon? This is really the sermon in one sentence. So here's the sentence. When we are perplexed by the difficult ways of God, we must respond in faith to what God has already promised and done especially in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say that one more time. When we are perplexed by the difficult ways of God, we must respond in faith 
to what God has already promised and done, especially in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might have noticed I stopped at verse 10. That's quite the cliffhanger, isn't it? Well, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll pick up at verse 11 and we'll complete the passage. This sermon, I would like to focus on Abraham and his faith, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Isaac and the substitution that takes place there. Well, I have three main points today. The first main point is the test. The test. And let's reread verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I want to note a few things about these verses. Look at verse 1. It says, after these things. Okay, what things? We always need to pay attention to that when, when a verse says that. Well, what has, come, what has preceded this event? There's a few things. First of all, Isaac, the son of promise, has been born. Abraham and Sarah had waited many, many years for this, and they finally had their son Isaac. What then happens is the banishment of Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness. Ishmael is the son of Abraham, but by Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And right before this text, we see Abraham making a peace treaty or an alliance with Abimelech, who's a king in Canaan. And it says right there at the end of 21 that he was in the land of the Philistines. So that's the context. After what things? Those are the things that come before this passage. And then look again in verse 1. It says that God tested Abraham. That's very important. You see, Abraham did not know what we know. We're readers, and we see God tested Abraham. And what this does is it takes the attention off of of is Isaac going to be okay? Because we know this is a test. And this puts the focus onto Abraham and his response to this command, but it also puts it the attention onto God. What is God doing in this event? Look at verse 2. Look at the clear affection that Abraham had for his son. There's four things that God describes Isaac in, in, with four different, in four different ways. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. By the way, that's the first time the word love appears in the scriptures, is right here. You see, God had promised Abraham that he would have a son, and that through this son, the promises that he had promised to Abraham would be fulfilled. And now the son was born, and Abraham loved his son. And now God tells him to sacrifice him. And look at verse 2 again. God gives very specific instructions. He doesn't just say, go slay your son. What does he tell him to do? God tells Abraham to offer him as a burnt offering. I think many times when we read this text, we just think of the knife and we think that he was just supposed to kill his son. But no, God tells Abraham, offer him as a burnt offering. It's very specific instructions. And in the Bible, there's a profound theology behind the burnt offering. The burnt offering is not just about the death of the sacrificial victim. It is about offering a complete and whole consecration to God as an act of worship. It is complete dedication to God. And you see, God had promised Abraham that through him and through his descendants and one descendant, that all the nations would be blessed. 
And here we see a picture of how that would come to pass. And so let's talk about the test. I have some observations. The first thing is that this test was not immoral. This test was not immoral. The fact that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son has raised concerns and anger and frustration in many people. They say things like this, how could a good God command Abraham to sacrifice his only son? And they have offered solutions to this. Some have said, well, maybe God is just evil. How could he tell his son to do that? Therefore, God is evil. Maybe agnostics or unbelievers say things like this. We obviously know this is wrong. Some say this couldn't be possibly what this text is saying, and they find ways to twist the words here to make this passage say something else. And I would humbly submit we do neither of those two things. So how do we respond to this difficulty in God's word? Well, we need to remember who our God is. Who is our God? The God that gives the test to Abraham is holy, there is no evil in him, and he is good. And when we read our Bibles and the difficult things sometimes that appear in Holy Scripture, I feel like especially in the Old Testament, we need to remember who our God is. And as I said earlier, we need to know the whole scriptures that can give us a full picture and revelation of who our God is. The scriptures are clear about our God. Habakkuk says, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and do good. And of course, Isaiah 55, 8-10 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And remember, God is not a God of passion in that he emotionally reacts to his creatures. He is graciously disposed towards his creatures and he blesses them, not because he decided that day to be good, but because God is good. He is goodness itself. And I think many... Much confusion and and, and consternation about the difficult things in the Bible arises from a faulty understanding of who God is. We need to read our Bibles in light of the whole Bible and what it tells us about God. You see, we must remember what we know about the character of God, who he is, must, must guide how we understand what God does in Scripture. And I want to point out one more thing here. God does not tempt people. There is a difference between tempting and testing. In James 1.13, Pastor Campbell preached this a few years ago, uh, he himself tempts no one. God does not tempt anyone. He does not try to trap his people as if he's trying to get them to sin. But he does give them tests as opportunities to demonstrate their faith and their obedience and their loyalty to him. And through these tests, God's people are strengthened in their faith. It is not God who tempts us. Yet, when God tests us, the tempter isn't he close behind. And we need to remember that difference. It is not God who tempts us, but he does test us. And the second thing to notice about this test is this was not Abraham's first test. In fact, this was Abraham's final test. When was his first test? If we go back to Genesis 12... God tells him 
he, he, call, he says, go get yourself out from your country, which was Ur in Mesopotamia, to the land which I will show you, which was the land of Canaan. God gave Abraham a choice between two options, stay there or go where I tell you. And if he was, if he says, if you go, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what does Abraham do? He goes, he passes the first test. But then what happens later in Abraham's life? We see a whole list of failed tests. What was the first failed test? Well, when there was a famine in the land of Canaan, Abraham doesn't trust in the Lord and his provision, but he takes his family and he flees to Egypt. And there in Egypt, Pharaoh sees that his wife is beautiful. And what does Abraham do? He lies and says, she's my sister. You see, he comes up with his own plan and scheme to save his own skin. He puts his wife in danger. This happens again with Abimelech. He does the exact same thing. And Abraham and Sarah together as husband and wife also fail a test together. You might remember this. And this, this test was not the presence of something bad, but it was the absence of something good. God had promised them that they would have a son, Isaac. But ten years had passed, and Sarah decided to come up with a plan to have a son. And what was this plan? That Abraham would have a son with her maidservant, Hagar. You see, Abraham and Sarah did not trust in the Lord's providence. And the parallels between this plan and Adam and Eve in the garden are very strong. It says that, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah, who was his wife. What does it say in Genesis 3? It says, God says to Adam, you listen to the voice of your wife. And then again it says, and Sarah took Hagar, and she gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife, and he went into her. And what does it say in the garden? It says, and the woman took the fruit, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate. You see, Abraham and Sarah failed this test, because instead of waiting for the Lord and his good time to bring the promised son They took things into their own hands. And so we see already that Abraham failed more tests than he passed. And now we get to his final test, the very ultimate test. You see, God gives him his son Isaac and then tells him to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to the the Lord. Matthew Henry writes, Never was any gold tried in such a hot fire. Abraham was given a great gift in his son, Yet, here's the question, could he part with that gift? Would he love the gift more than the giver? Or would he prize his gift so highly that he rejected the Lord's command, even though it meant offering his own son? Well, I can't talk about the subject of testing and not think of the greatest test and the greatest passer of all the tests. And I'm thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ You see, Abraham passed this test here in in, in sacrificing his son, offering his son to be sacrificed. But the Lord Jesus Christ passed many tests. And I want to talk about one. Before he was crucified, Jesus went up into a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Remember another man who faced a test in a garden? And Jesus was greatly vexed at the thought of the crucifixion and the wrath of God that was coming upon him. Would he avoid the death of the cross and the wrath of God? Or would he willingly go and offer his life as a sacrifice? We know that Jesus struggled in prayer, just as Pastor talked about earlier. 
Matthew tells us that Jesus fell on his face and prayed. Luke tells us that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And this is what he prayed. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And when the mob came with Judas the betrayer, what did Jesus do? He neither fled nor he fought, but he said, friend, do what you came to do. And his followers tried to protect him, but Jesus stopped them and he said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, Jesus passed the ultimate test and he gave up his life as a ransom for his people. As great as Abraham's faith and obedience is in passing this test from God, it pales in comparison to the test the Lord Jesus was given and how he passed it perfectly. And did you know, brother and sister, that you are tested today? Now, you are not tested in the same way that Abraham was tested. Kids, if your dad tells you, here's some wood, I have a fire and a knife, we're going up to Mount Baldy to worship the Lord, call the cops. That's not going to happen today. We, we live in a very different time of redemptive history. But we are tested today. James writes, count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or tests of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James does not say if you will meet trials or tests of various kinds. He says when you meet trials and tests of various kinds. And what should be our response as believers? We should rejoice. We should count it all joy, or as some translations say, pure joy. Why? Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Oftentimes, isn't it that the believers that are the most tested are the most steadfast? I think we can even see that from our own, exp- our own experience. And so, brother or sister, if you're going through a trial or a test right now, think about the ways it's making you steadfast, and then count it as joy. And again, we are not going to be tested in the same way that Abraham was tested. But we will come across situations in our lives where we face Abraham-like dilemmas. Where it seems like the promises of God are contradicting the commands of God. Maybe you're going through a very difficult trial right now. Like cancer, or family dysfunction, or great loss or tragedy. Or maybe you're waiting for something that you've prayed for for years and it doesn't seem like God is granting your wish. Maybe you want to be married and raise a family, but marriage doesn't look hopeful. Maybe you've prayed for your child's salvation for decades and God doesn't seem to be answering your prayer. Maybe you're suffering from a chronic illness and it just doesn't seem to go away. What do we do in these circumstances, brothers and sisters? We trust God and we hold on. John Owen wrote, I love this quote, he said, Sometimes through God's providence there may appear to be an inconsistency between God's commands and his promises. Nothing but faith, bowing the soul to divine sovereignty, can reconcile this. And I think that's a good reminder for us. And so are you going through a test, brother or sister? Does it make you question God's promises or his character? Because we will be tested but we need to remember that it's from a God that is, who is good in his very being. And remember, as Paul says, that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. So to recap this first point, Abraham was given a test, 
to offer his obedience and loyalty to God in a complete, whole, burnt offering. And he responded in obedience. He obeyed God. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate test of being perfectly past the cross. And we are given tests by a good and wise God. And we need to see tests as opportunities to show our love and our loyalty to our loving Heavenly Father. Well, let's look at the second point, and this is from verses 3 to 10, and this is called true faith. Number two, true faith. I'm not going to reread verses 3, for t- three through 10 for sake of time, but let's, let's look through this and, and notice a few things. Look at verse 3. Look how quick Abraham was to obey. It says, For he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. His obedience was immediate. He obeyed God. Verse 4, notice how long the journey took. It took three days. That will be important later. But think, think of, uh, put yourself in Abraham's shoes as he walks, probably with Isaac on the donkey. That's three days that he's knowing he's going to sacrifice his son. Think of every time he looks over. Just think of the anguish in Abraham's own heart. This was a difficult journey. Look at verse 5. Abraham tells his servants that he and Isaac were going to worship. See, that's how Abraham viewed this event. He viewed it as worshiping God. And then in verse 6 and 7, many people have wondered, well, how old was Isaac during this event? Well, we know two things that might help us. We know that he was old enough to ask a very good question, actually. And we also know that he was old enough to carry a bundle of wood up a mountain. So this was not a toddler. Uh, Obviously, he was old enough to do those two things. But we don't know how old he was besides those two things. And let's look at verse 7. Look at Isaac's question. He says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, how did he know that? That's also a very good question. Maybe Abraham had told Isaac that they were going to worship and do a burnt offering, and he knew there needed to be a lamb. Or maybe he had overheard Abraham telling his two servants. We don't exactly know, but Isaac asks a good question. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And look at verse 8. Abraham's wonderful response. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And in Hebrew, there's a couple things to note here. In Hebrew, in a sentence, the verb usually comes first and then the subject. That's opposite. In English, we start with the the subject and then we go to the verb. And in Hebrew, when the subject comes first, it's placing attention on the subject. So we see God will provide. This is putting emphasis on God. God, he will provide. And the word provide really is the verb to see. God will see, or God will see to it, my son. And what does Abraham mean here? He could be speaking, in a sense, ironically. God will provide a lamb, thinking in his head, well, Isaac is the lamb. And so we see in verse 10 that Abraham goes to the point of killing his son. The narrative is moving pretty fast, isn't it? And then it slows down into almost slow-mo, and it says that Abraham raised his knife to slaughter his son, showing to the very extent of which Abraham obeyed the Lord. And so what can we learn from this, these seven verses in this passage about faith? Because Abraham expressed deep and loyal faith to the Lord And we all want to have greater faith, don't we? So let's look at a few things about Abraham's faith. Notice, first of all, that his faith was not a blind leap in the dark. 
Some have understood this passage as Abraham almost arbitrarily obeying God and just going for it, just a blind leap in the dark. And they just don't, people describe faith that way too. That's just a blind leap in the dark. But my friends, that's not what faith is, and that is not what Abraham demonstrates in this passage. You see, Abraham had resolve. He was confident about something. Think about it. That's almost unnerving, the confidence that he had to go sacrifice his son. And so we're going to look at this. Why did he have this confidence? Well, we know that the second thing about his faith is that his faith was grounded in God's promises and deeds. His faith was grounded in God's promises and deeds. God had told Abraham multiple times throughout his life that through his offspring, through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This promise was not just a promise, but a covenant promise. And I'll try to explain this. You see, God told Abraham, he swore to Abraham that these promises would come true. But God did more than just this. We read in Genesis 15, this is a very interesting event, where Abraham asked God, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Speaking of the land of Canaan and all the promises of, of God. And God tells Abraham to do something very interesting. He tells him to take all these different animals and cut them in half and put them in two piles. And at twilight, what happens? It says that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the animals. Now, that's kind of difficult to understand, but this is a covenant-making ceremony. And if you're thinking of the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in the wilderness that led the, Egypt, the people of Israel out of Egypt, I think you're on the right track. And so what we see here is God is confirming his covenant with Abraham by taking an oath upon himself, what we call a sanction. He doesn't just promise Abraham that these things will come true, but he's saying basically, may the same be done to me if I don't keep my promise would be the cutting of the animals, basically death. Now, there's so many riches here I'd love to go into, but for the point of our sermon, Abraham did not have some vague hope or understanding that God's promises would come true. He had covenant promises where God had gone to great lengths to show Abraham that he would be true to his promises and his word. You see, that helps us so much to understand Abraham's mindset, the unimaginable trust and obedience that Abraham had in offering his own son. This helps us understand Abraham's faith. And there's an even more remarkable aspect of Abraham's faith. Look at verse 5. Abraham tells his two servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He knew he was going to sacrifice his son, but he also believed that Isaac would be raised from the dead after he had been killed. That is the great extent of faith that Abraham showed. He told his two servants that after worshiping, I and the boy will come again to you. In Hebrew, the verb come again is a plural verb. We will come to you. That's just remarkable. Abraham believed in the covenant promises of God that even though God commanded him to kill his son, that he would raise him again. If you don't believe me, let's listen to Hebrews. Hebrews eleven nineteen. He, that's Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That is remarkable faith. And it becomes even more interesting when you look at verse 4. Notice the time frame of the journey. We saw this already. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. You see, Abraham, in his mind, had determined to kill his son, 
but he also believed that he would be raised from the dead even on the third day. Now, the typology is not precise here, but what happened to Isaac figuratively happened to Jesus literally, did it not? Jesus was sacrificed, and on the third day he was received back from the dead. Now, the the theology of the third day is really fascinating. You can talk to me later about that. But that is an amazing demonstration of faith from Abraham. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, what is your faith like? If faith is trusting in God, looking back with confidence at what he has promised and what he has done, and living in light of those things in your life, your everyday life, do you trust God? Many find themselves struggling in the everyday context of their life. I feel like my faith is weak. I don't feel confident in the promises of God. Well, why is that? Maybe we need to look back at the promises of God and what he has already done for his people, especially in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that is the ground upon which we stand. That is the grounding of our faith. As Paul says, Abraham was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Are you fully persuaded that God will do what he has promised? That's the question to ask yourself. You see, Abraham had only a limited revelation, but we have the full revelation of God's word. And so I ask you, why do we still struggle to believe and to trust in our God? You see, we know the end of the story. We know that the serpent-crushing seed of Genesis 3.15 is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the whole story of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We know these things. We have the new covenant in the blood of Christ. We need to respond in faith to all the issues of our life, knowing full well that the promises of God are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I must ask you, though, Do you believe that the promises of God are true, but you don't live like they're true? You see, faith is not just agreeing with the truth. It's not just even believing that that these things are true. When you became a member of our church, there was a question. You know the five questions they ask you up here? There's actually six questions. One of the questions goes like this. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior of sinners? Yes. Or some of you say, I do. And then the second part of the question, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Yes. You see, the first part is belief. Do you believe that he is the only savior of sinners? But the second part is, do you rest and receive that he is the savior for you? You see the difference? Faith is not just agreeing. Faith is trusting that his promises are true for you specifically. See, Abraham had this faith. He believed that God's promises to him were going to come true. When it comes to Christ, you must not only know him, but you must believe in him, but you also must trust in him. And I want to say one more thing about faith. Abraham's faith was not a perfect faith that had been that was an evidence of a perfect man. His faith was tested throughout his life. As we saw earlier, he failed over and over again, showing very weak faith at points in his life. If you're discouraged about the weakness of your faith, it's okay. Trust in the Lord and know that through your life you will be matured and grown through tests and trials of various kinds if you are looking to his promises. Well, lastly, the last, the third point is the father's only son. The father's only son. 
in the scriptures, God tells his prophets to act out things or reenact things that will, uh, in a sense, prefigure what is to come. Sometimes they look quite silly. For example, Ezekiel is told to make a model of Jerusalem and lay on one side and then the other for over a year. This was to symbolize the siege of Jerusalem. Or he tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute and keep following her to win her back when she was unfaithful to him over and over again. And this was to show God's covenantal love to his unlovely people. And here we see Abraham was commanded to go offer up his only son as a whole and complete offering to God. And we heard earlier in our sermon that God was prefiguring the way in which he would bring blessing to all the nations. Adam, by his sin, had plunged the whole world into sin and all his posterity. But we know that there was a promised seed, a promised serpent crusher, who was seen as the hope of Adam's fallen race. And in this passage, we can see a glimpse into the wonderful plan of God's redemption. We can see how salvation was won for all of God's people. You see, Isaac, the only son of promise was, that was given by his father up to God, is a type of Christ. And now when I say that he's a type of Christ, I want to remind us of two things about types. Types are not the same thing as the thing that it fulfills. Jesus and Isaac are not the same thing. Isaac is different than Christ. Also, a type is always lesser than to what it points to. So Isaac is not as great as Christ. I think we all know this in our heads. But let's look at this. How is Isaac a type of Christ? Well, like Isaac, Jesus was a son of promise. Like Isaac, whose birth was in a very real way supernatural. Remember Sarah was old beyond the years of childbearing? She was barren, and yet she conceived and bore a son. And Jesus' birth was by far greater, in, in a much greater way, supernatural, for he was born of a virgin. Isaac, who was Abraham's only son, Jesus is the only son, only and beloved son of the Father. It goes to the point of even as Isaac carries the wood up to the mountain to build the altar upon which he will be sacrificed, we see the Lord Jesus Christ carrying his cross up to Mount Calvary upon which he will be sacrificed. And as Abraham showed his love and fear for God by offering his only beloved son, so God the Father has shown his love to a fallen world by offering his only beloved son as an offering for sin. And just as Abraham reasoned that God would raise his son from the dead, even on the third day, so God has raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead on the third day. Martin Luther read this passage to his family one time for family devotions. And after reading it, his wife exclaimed, his wife Katie, she exclaimed, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his own son like that. And Luther turned and he said, but Katie, he did. He did. You see, in total faith and obedience, Abraham offered up his only son to God, believing that God would be true to his promises, promises made by covenant, even to the point of raising his son from the dead. But in an eternally greater sense, God loved the world. So he gave his only begotten son, that the one who believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And as Paul says in Romans 8, using the language of Genesis 22, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Praise the Lord that even though Abraham offered his only son, 
that sacrifice was not accepted, nor was it ever intended to be. Because the only way that sin would be dealt with was by the God-man, Jesus Christ. For truly, as Isaiah wrote, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And are you sitting here today, friend, and that you think that your good works is what will get you into heaven, that your good works will outweigh your bad works? This will never be. For you have sinned against a holy and a just God. But listen to the good news. The Father has sent his only begotten Son into the world to die the death that you deserve. Come to him. Throw yourself at his feet. He was crucified and raised from the dead. And he has won salvation for all who will believe in him. Believe that Jesus is the only Savior for sinners and that he died for you. And rest and receive upon him alone and all that he has offered in the gospel. As the hymn goes, to God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your son and that you sent him to die in our stead. And Lord, we look at this this event in Abraham's life and the great test that he overcame. And Lord, we pray that like Abraham, that we would show faith in the tests that are given to us in our lives and that we would, our our faith, Lord, would be grounded in the promises and in the death of Christ and what God has done for us already. I pray for anyone here, Lord, that is shaky and weak in their faith, that this would strengthen their faith and that they would look to what God has done and not look to themselves and that this would strengthen them. Lord, I pray for, for any here who, who are not saved, Lord, who do not believe in the Lord Jesus and that he died for them. I pray, Lord, that you, your Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would see the great, beautiful, free gift of the gospel that is given by God to them. And I pray that you would save them even this afternoon. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.